This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Michael Cashman. Baron Cashman of Limehouse in the London borough of Tower Hamlets is a, an actor, a politician, a writer, an activist, and uh, a friend for, for many, many years when he became a member of the European Parliament. Uh, Michael, uh, your book, uh, your memoir, one of them which came out last year is now coming out in paperback, one of them from Albert Square to Parliament Square. For the benefit of our non-British listeners, Albert Square is a reference obviously to your role in the very successful BBC soap opera, EastEnders. Uh, it is a fascinating book and a very open book and a very, uh, in many ways, poignant book. And I, many things I learned about you from the book, which I did not know before. One, for example, that you were a successful playwright as well as uh, an actor at the start of your career, very much mentored, encouraged by the famous Alan Akebourne. Secondly, you're also a successful stage actor as well as a, a TV and, and film actor. And, and last but not least, you, at one point you wanted to leave all that behind you and train as a doctor, which I found absolutely a gobsmacking when I learned that. So we'll, we'll try and cover as much of that as possible. I thought we'd start, this is obviously a free-ranging conversation, Michael, about your role uh, along with others in, in co-founding uh, Stonewall uh, in 1989, I, I think I'm right in saying. So could you explain the backdrop to, that, to the creation of Stonewall, or why then? Mm, of course, Paul, and it, it's lovely to see you. My 15 years in the European Parliament um, go down as something special. Um, and I'm glad I've surprised you with some of the things <laughs> you didn't know, because otherwise, what's the point of uh, writing? As one of my colleagues in the House of Lords said, a very bold and very brave uh, <laughs> memoir. Uh, so, interestingly, Stonewall, for those who don't know, Stonewall um, it, is arguably Britain's most successful uh, equal rights uh, lobby organization. Set up in 89, as you rightly say, uh, by uh, me as founding chair, Ian, Ian McKellen, uh, wonderful activists um, like Lisa Power, Jenny Wilson, and many others. Uh, and it was set up because we knew we had to campaign and win the arguments for legal equality and social justice for lesbians, gay men, and bisexuals. But the issue of transsexuals, right, rightly and very proudly, came in later. Um, because it grew out of Section 28, which was the uh, first anti-lesbian and gay law in 100 years, that Mrs. Thatcher's Conservative government introduced at the height of the AIDS crisis. So when a community was was being attacked uh, and suffering and stigmatized. Instead of being supported and relieved, it was a hammer blow. Um, but the community and our allies, it's always important to remember the allies because you achieve nothing without allies. Um, we joined a campaign against Section 28, put all of the arguments to the political parties and the media, but we lost the battle. It became law. And Stonewall was the determination that we must never let 
another Section 28 happen again. Uh, a privately funded, uh, we, we call it uh, Brass Plate Westminster organization. They're putting the arguments for change across the political parties, removing the party political element. Because after all, if you are campaigning for equality, you want the same rights, the same protections, and the same responsibilities as everybody else. And that's how Stonewall came through and achieved incredible things in, in a relatively a relatively short time. But the rider is, I always say to myself, what is achieved now is not achieved by my generation, but achieved across thousands of generations of people who sacrificed so much. Well, the famous, the famous, we have to talk about the famous gay kiss in East Enders uh, 30 odd years ago now. When you when you were doing that scene with your fellow actor, did you know at the time that it was going to create the, the rompus that it did subsequently create in the media? No, and I, I and that is the interesting thing. Gary Hales, who played my my character is Colin, and he played Barry. Um, and at the time, 19, 1986, when I went in, the show was attracting 11 million viewers per episode. One Christmas episode, we got more viewers than the Queen's broadcast, and it was rumoured that Her Majesty was not amused. <laughs> um, and the thing about any work is you roll up, you do it, and then you go on to the next bit. The Kiss, which was in 1987, um, was actually a peck on the forehead. Barry is unwell, he's in the flat, Colin's reassuring him, kisses him on the forehead, leaves. The reaction of the tabloids was, it, they blew several gaskets. Um, politicians, particularly on the right, uh, demanded for the characters to be axed. And if the characters weren't taken out, then the show should be taken off. Moral campaigners uh, wrote to the BBC and demanded um, that we be kicked out. But, but it, it, it was of, the reaction was of its time because AIDS and HIV was depicted in the media, I quote, as the gay plague. When I went into the show, there were questions in Parliament as to why the BBC were putting a gay character in a family show. Um, so they equated uh, LGBT as not belonging with a family, failing to recognize that, that we are born of, uh, of, of men and women within a family, sometimes not, not always in a family, um, and equally that through Section 28, uh, we were a threat to children, and through AIDS and HIV, we were a threat to the wider population. So the courage of the BBC in putting those two characters there and maintaining it until I decided to leave two and a half years later, was formidable. A question I wanted to ask you a long, for a long time, Michael, is um, popular entertainers at the time, or even before then, the 70s, like John Inman and Larry Grayson, who were hugely popular, weren't they kind of, to use a slightly indelicate phrase, guilty or because of pandering to kind of stereotypes of, of gay people at the time? They played these kind of deliberately so and were successful on the back of playing these to be slightly indelicate mincing, prancing queens, right? And I just wonder if you were a gay activist, but people like those gentlemen who were very popular and very good at their job, they were not actually helping the cause. Well, it, interestingly, but first of all, before I answer that, let me deal with gay activists. I was going to call my book, The Accidental Activist. 
when I went into EastEnders, I was going into that as an actor, recognizing the responsibility of playing uh, a very non-stereotypical, ordinary man who turns out to be gay in Britain's most popular program. Um, it was section, section 28, the reactions of the media uh, that turned me into that activist, that arguably set me on the journey uh, uh, to where I am now. Um, but but the Larry Grayson's, the John Inman's who played those camp men, um, you could only really be on popular TV at that time as someone who uh, might be gay unless you played that role. Mm. But historically, one has to remember that if you look at um, uh, throughout the entertainment industry, uh, the drag queens, uh, the uh, the camp, it was there to create laughter because historically, if they laughed at you, they didn't punch you. Um, and so laughter was seen as a very powerful tool of, of kind of suggesting that these, it was okay, these people existed, they liked to laugh, they could send themselves up. But, but that was, going back to my character, that was the importance of what happened when it came in, it broke the portrayal, the, the popular television portrayal of, uh, of gay men in particular. Well, by way of contrast, fast forward 50 years and your great friend Ian McKellen and probably your great friend also Derek Jacobi in that other popular TV series, Vicious. I mean, they are, but they are generally playing out, they, they are playing, they're playing slightly themselves in a very outrageous fashion, but it seems that they're, it's, it just seems different somehow. It was a, it's a very funny TV series, very well acted, obviously. But we seem to come a long way in the 50 years since the Inmans and the Larry Graysons. Yes, we, we have. And but interestingly about Vicious, um, it, as you know, what's the point of doing you and I having this chat if, if, if I'm not honest? Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the show um, because I, I, I just thought I didn't find two gay men in that situation particularly funny. I found that there, uh, some of the caricatures, not in the acting, fine acting, but some, some caricatures were coming together. But then occasionally you got a brilliant moment when they were in bed together. The, the saw something, yeah. something that was tender. Uh, uh, and um, uh, the opponents to equality, especially LGBT equality, uh, only portray us through perceived sexual activity. They have no comprehension of the love that can exist between two people, which can be as strong and as sustaining as any other two people. So when you get that in a program like Vicious, it's, it's worth its weight in platinum, which I think is much more expensive than gold. Yeah. So, um, so now, 2021, um, how much sure of the equality agenda, broadly defined, do you think, has, has, has now been achieved and, there's, and how irreversible are the legal but also the societal uh, tools now in place to, to ensure that equality? It's all reversible. People forget that um, in the 1930s, those, living, those gay men living oppressed in the United Kingdom uh, went to Berlin so that they could live out freely their lives. It's a reminder that the, the overture to horror and genocide is terrifyingly ordinary and terrifyingly swift when people do not stand in its way. Um, now that we're out of the European Union, I worry 
Um, uh, I, defended, I defended the Charter of Fundamental Rights in the House of Lords debates, as I did remaining within the EU, because if you lose the legal base for non-discrimination, let's, as an example, in the workplace, um, if I can't go to the European Court in Luxembourg or to the Commission to ask them to take action uh, because we're no longer protected by that, that acquis. Uh, I would have to rely on the government maintaining that right. Uh, and I fear for that. In, rights are never taken away in a full frontal attack. There's always an excuse, which is the economy. We have to free up employers so that because the economy is so bad, they need to hire the talent that they want to hire. And if it means discrimination, we have to live with that. The cake producer must be allowed to refuse to make cakes for some, the same sex couple, because it may destroy the rest of their market. That is how rights are diluted and eradicated. In the United Kingdom, we've got I think about 95% uh, of the legal uh, equality that we need, but some of that is is, is being undermined. Um, the um, Some of the rhetoric coming out of government, uh, representing people who talk about equality and defending uh, equality are sometimes referred by government ministers as fighting cultural battles. When was equality ever yeah. about culture? or we were called wokes. Well, if to be someone who campaigns for equality and the end to injustice is being a woke, I proudly profess to be one. Um, and equally, uh, the, uh, the fudge on uh, inclusive relationship education in schools, the, the fudge that's come out from the um, DF, the Department for Education's guidance, that too uh, is worrying. So, um, so all rights are reversible, but the more we stand in the shoes of the others, the more we hand, hold the hands of those fighting for equality as minorities and women as a majority, so the stronger we become. And, I, and I'll finish on this because, as you know, I can go on. What <laughs> I find so reprehensible and so shocking is that the attacks on trans women and trans men and trans teenagers here in the United Kingdom, which is life-threatening, is being encouraged by some lesbian, gay and bisexual activists who have learned nothing. They are using the language of Section 28 that these people are a threat. How can you be a threat if you want to live as you are according to the same laws as everybody else. That is an example of how you begin to slide backwards. Well, if it doesn't sound maybe possibly like an ignorant question, Michael, but in societal terms, maybe not so much in legal terms, how prevalent in the UK 2021 is, is, is homophobia, maybe in a broad definition still in the, in the country? Well, in the broader definition, um, because there's homophobia, biphobia, um, but there, there's... You see, I would equate, I would equate them all. I, I, I'd say, take the transphobe. Mm. That transphobe will become an anti-Semite, will become a, a racist. Each one, uh, intolerance is, is never satisfied. Once you feed it, it ultimately will eat you. Um, 
hate crimes are on the are on the rise. Uh, uh, I was told this week that actually they're beginning to decrease. Uh, week in, week out, in some of our Sunday newspapers, increasing attacks on trans people, um, uh, and increasingly, uh, when ministers say we don't need to deal with banning conversion therapy at the moment, we create a long gap. We don't need to deal with the Gender uh, Recognition Act. It sends a worrying signal that encourages degrees of homophobia. Having said that, I give credit in the House of Lords. I've been, I work with the government. I work across like we do in the European Parliament. You work across the political spectrum and the government has uh, recently taken on board a, an amendment from me addressing posthumous pardons in the Marines and the, the Royal Marines and, and the army. I've equally worked uh, with the Home Office Minister uh, to address the work that we need to do there. So it's that liberal element that I want to encourage in all political parties. And the illiberal uh, element is equally in all parties. Let's talk then briefly about your 15 years in, in the European Parliament. Parliament. And, and question one, why the European Parliament? Were you not tempted to, to try national politics first or mm. instead of? No, I, I, I think I was so, so much attracted to European politics um, because when we set up Stonewall, we, we, we went over to meet uh, some of the European commissioners um, and, um, uh, and we met, the, uh, it might have been Papandreou, the Greek commissioner. Um, and, and I think that was when you and I met yeah. in, um, in that, the, the Peggy, no, no, Coutillochets. Yes, yeah, yeah. And we came out, uh, and Jeff, who worked for PA, came out. I got in the lift. And he went, "My God, you're famous! What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I told him. I said, "I'm here, Stonewall." He went, "Come to Kitty O'Shea's," and he brought in the journalists. But what I witnessed in um, it, with the European Commission uh, was a group of um, people working there who wanted to listen. Uh, and who gave us uh, a small amount of money to go off and do some research to take back. And it's always seemed to me as someone born of the left, my, my dad was a docker, my mum very proud of his cleaner, that the concept of achieving more by working with others mm. is much, much more than you can ever achieve by working alone. And the defence of fundamental rights, people should always be reminded that Europe was set up in, in the shadow of the Second World War. And, and, it, uh, and it was created out of people's hopes, people's dreams, and, and what happened across Europe. And Europe was formed on the basis that we, we would never look away again, that an attack upon one was an attack upon another. And so for me, it seemed a natural home. And oh my God, I couldn't have dreamt of better. Did you, did, you, did you think you'd stay for 15 years, three terms, when you were first elected? No, I said to Paul, my, my wonderful husband, I said, I'll only do 10 years. <laughs> and, um, and then in the middle of my second term, I thought, no, there's more work I want to do. Uh, and the work was wide-ranging. Um, as you know, working on what became really an EU-wide freedom of information uh, regulation, uh, the... Uh, the, the regulation on public access to all the documents held, received and produced by the uh, EU institutions and the agencies, uh, the non-discrimination legislation, uh, 
that I worked on, uh, writing the Schengen border code and so much more. But the great thing is that you have to work with others. You have to build compromise. Um, and then you sit down and negotiate with the council and the commission, recognizing that the three institutions have to come out having given something, but all having won. And that, sadly, I don't think British negotiators recognize at the moment. Uh, you can't uh, produce a satisfactory negotiation if you've, sorry for the language, if you've castrated the other, because eventually uh, revenge comes back. We've seen that time and time again, and then the whole agreement falls apart. As a small um, sidebar, I thought I knew pretty much everything there was to know about the European Parliament, but you say on more than one occasion in the book how, how lonely the life is as well, how, how many times you spend an evening on your own just eating some meal in your, in your hotel room or somewhere. And I must admit, I was quite taken aback. I didn't realise that the, that level of loneliness presumably applies to many, many members of the European Parliament. It, it does, and I think, you know, it's no surprise that... Well, first of all... It's a, it's a strange kind of loneliness because you're all day working with people mm. and then you go off to Plus Luxembourg um, <laughs> and you, you find the lovely little restaurant where you can get that table in the corner um, and, and you don't really, you want to be selective about taking work into the evening, which is why I would sit down often um, with um, Glenis Kinnock, uh, Arlene, Arlene McCarthy and uh, sometimes uh, Neil Kinnock um, to, to unwind. Mm. Um, and so the loneliness was, was kind of an option. Uh, but, and then I ended up, I would end up drinking too much. Uh, I would en end up binge smoking. Mm. Um, and, and, and it is politics by its very nature is a lonely life because often mm. you, um, you have to take unpopular decisions and have the courage to uphold them. Uh, and equally know that a bit of your social life has to be sacrificed. Somebody said to me recently, given that it's six years since Paul died, they said, aren't you on, it was a journalist, she said, aren't you on the dating apps, aren't you? And I said, well, if I did that, you, you put all that you believe in at risk because you can so easily be set up, you can so easily be misrepresented um, and um, but it's but politics is a life that I chose and I loved it the thing some of the things I'm proud of yeah, um, yeah. no absolutely rightly so so you leave the European Parliament in 2014 and then this thing called the Brexit referendum comes along a couple of years later uh, Jeremy Corbyn is leading the Labour, Labour Party you've been a, as you say in the book and you just said now in this conversation you and Paul uh, lifelong Labour supporters, and, but also pro-European, which wasn't exactly the flavour of the month in the Leader of the Opposition's office. No. Um, and then you, you, in 2019, you, you resigned from the Labour Party. Tell, talk me through that. That must have been quite a momentous decision for a lifelong Labour person like you to take. It, it was. 45 years as a member, uh, 12 years as a member of the ruling National Executive Committee, and I served as chair yeah. of the party. Um, and I've been making the case along with others in the House of Lords in all of our debates as to uh, why we needed to remain in Europe, why we needed to rethink this. Uh, and equally, when you win 
when they won Brexit um, by that, that majority, small majority, you have to govern a, an agreement in order to try and pull as many people into the centre as possible. And there were other ways uh, to remain uh, a part of the, the custom, in the customs union, to remain um, a, a member of the uh, European Free Trade Association, Free Trade Area. And, um, uh, and I became increasingly exasperated at the Labour leadership, Corbyn and the people around him, uh, failing to put the case for us remaining uh, and accepting the, uh, the fact that we would uh, abandon all of the acquis. Uh, I found it incredible that people on the left couldn't see that here we had a social market which had at its heart social protection, consumer protection. If on the left you can't understand that, how, what, what future is there? Mm. And as I said earlier, the fact that work, the, the concept of solidarity is vital. Britain was pulled out of an economic depression and, and, and it's appalling environmental record in the 1980s. Why? Because the European Union invested here. And so I thought, Michael, you've, it's the election this week. And so overnight, I the said- The European elections, yeah. The European elections. And I said overnight uh, on Twitter, I said tomorrow morning, uh, I will be voting Liberal Democrat. Uh, on, the, on the single biggest issue facing this country since the Second World War. The Liberal, I, I'm not, and I said, I'm not a Liberal Democrat, but I will be voting for the Liberal Democrats. Uh, and then my second tweet was, because I know the rules, uh, I said, I think I've just resigned from the Labour Party. Uh, and I did it with a very heavy heart. The anti-Semitism that uh, had been there uh, was, was pushing me. And in the end, if you can't stand by your principles, you have nothing. Uh, and colleagues in the party and in the Lords uh, were very understanding. And I decided to uh, not to join any other party, uh, but to sit on Labour's benches as a non-aligned peer, thereby signalling that from my point of view, under Jeremy Corbyn, the party had left me. And now we have Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition, what is your view about his position, stance on, on Brexit, trying to not make it an issue to be addressed from his point of view, at least for the foreseeable future? What do you think about all that? Well, you, you can't ignore a truck that's coming at you down the middle of the road. Um, I, I want the Labour Party to set out uh, that it sees its future back in Europe. Um, and, and Britain left at a very strange time when it had amazing influence and amazing deals. People forget that we not only had the right to opt in to laws, but during negotiation, we could negotiate and then decide to opt out. And we had a brilliant position and we had a powerful position with other countries, especially when we, uh, we enlarged to 28. So I want the Labour Party to restate its values uh, of working together to achieve much, much more than it could ever achieve by acting alone. COVID has shown us how terrifyingly small the world is and how in interconnected, whether we like it or not, we truly are. It's also shown uh, that if we embrace modern technology uh, and travel, 
then barriers mean very little unless we work together uh, to ensure that uh, we gain as much for one country as we do for those other countries. Uh, it's, the, it's the concept of, um, of why the Labour Party was formed, a union. Your, your book is obviously a memoir about you, but also a very touching and generous tribute to your wonderful husband, Paul Cottingham. I think he'd be looking down on you and saying, you did good by writing this book and it deserves all the success it will inevitably get. So uh, Michael Cashman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.